Sometimes you just got to begin to chase a dream that is bigger than you. Sometimes when it seems like you're so far behind, you'll never catch up. You got to get up on your feet. You can't wait for other people to be what you've been called to be. Hello and welcome to the Ugly Daughter Podcast. This is Julia Legian. I'm excited to have my lovely friend Genevieve Radman as my special guest for the show today. Genevieve is a CEO and a founder of a non-profit charity organization called Generosity Abroad, based in Kenya, East Africa. She is a registered nurse and a humanitarian. Hello, Genevieve. Welcome to the show. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, tell me. What's a beautiful lady like you came from a well-to-do eastern suburb in Australia doing in Kenya? How did that happen? Um, after finishing high school in 2009, um, I always knew I wanted to do volunteering somewhere in Africa, but I wasn't really sure where to go. So I went to a travel agent, and they were the ones who sent me to Kenya. Um, and I've just had a pretty privileged upbringing. I've had a very, you know, I've always had good education. I've always had a very privileged lifestyle, private school education all my life, food in my stomach, clothes on my back, and shelter over my head. So I just have always felt obliged to do something for other people who haven't been as fortunate as I have. What inspired you to to start your project in Kenya? Um, through the volunteering program, which was done by a UK company called Madventurer, mm-hmm. they did teaching and building and when I was initially there for two weeks there was a little kindergarten that was made out of cardboard and wood and com- and compared to the other school that the primary school that we were building out of bricks I was really concerned like why was nothing being done about this little kindy when it's on the same campus um and I was like okay well how much would it cost to to build a new one and they said two and a half thousand dollars and I managed to raise fifteen thousand dollars and build a brand new kindergarten new location new desk chairs teachers office water tanks toilets all these other things and then it just made me realize that if I had the ability to do that as a 19 year old then that's what I want to be doing in my future I want to be developing projects which will help uplift and empower communities so they can have a better lifestyle and you know educational system and facilities for, for children to actually continue their studies rather than dropping out every now and then because their families can't afford it how hard was it for you to raise nineteen thousand dollars at um, 19 years of age Um, fortunately it wasn't that difficult at all. I was in Kenya on my second trip in 2010 and I was living there for six months. I just sent an email back home just saying, would people be interested in donating some money? And the donations exceeded what my, my goal was, which was two and a half thousand dollars. So to have raised 15,000, I was like, that just shows you how many people support and care and how many people trust that where I'm saying the money goes to is exactly where it will, you know, end up rather than, people just handing over money and not actually knowing where it will go. So how did you come up with this project? I mean, how difficult is it is it for you to find the right people and also the supporters to help you to build a, the school Genevieve? Because, I mean, it, it's very hard to find someone that you can trust to look after the project for you, especially in the third world. Yeah, that's so true. Um. Because we were already doing a teaching building program, I used, everybody was local apart from myself. So I used local builders and I asked them to give me quotes. I asked them to do, you know, the foundation of the work and get all the materials 
so having already known builders and teams who are able to work and the, the time frame which they gave me, I was able to utilize that relationship that I had already built up with them. Um, and I used the same builders when I started my training center for women and girls. However, the builders started to slack off a bit and, you know, they were being a bit dishonest. So we had to change builders. So there's a lot of challenges that come because trust is a huge issue and being white, people look at you as if you're just money. So you have to be so careful with how you deal with people to make sure that you don't get ripped off yeah. and that the job is being done properly, not yeah. just for them to make extra money and do an okay job. Because in the third world, you know, any Westerner that come over there, they view you as an ATM machine and sure. <laughs> <laughs> they try to take advantage of, of that. So you were mentioning that you lived in Kenya for six six months. Can you describe the living condition over there? I mean, I came from a third world, and I find it impossible to go back to my own country, which is Vietnam, and I barely can survive for two or three weeks there. And here you are, you lived there for six months. I love it. I think it's so much fun. I don't. I think the reality is, I think at the end of the day, I can pick up and come home back to Australia, whereas. This is how people live. This is what their conditions are for the rest yeah. of their life, whether yeah. they know different or not. So it doesn't bother me to use squat toilets. It doesn't bother me to have cold bucket showers because at least I have access to water, you mm-hmm. know, no matter how terrible the conditions are that I've lived in, whether it's sleeping bags on the floor or whatever, yeah. it is yeah. still so much more than what the locals have. Yeah. So when, when you put that in com- into comparison and you look at the contrast, No matter how harsh my living conditions are, it is still a million times better than what most people will ever experience. Can you please describe what kind of conditions, challenges and struggle that the people in Kenya have to do with every day? Yeah, so simple things like there's no electricity in this village. So I'm, I'm based in Kurunga, which is a small village about 20 minutes from Gilgil, which is a city between Naivasha and Akuru. And majority of the village has no access to electricity. Now, in Australia, for example, our children rely on electricity for all the technology that we have to use on a daily basis. You know, as soon as it's dark, there's no light. So they have to use um, kerosene lamps, but that that's really bad a, for the environment. And it's not really sustainable if you can't afford it. You don't have the money to be, to, to be able to buy it, then you obviously don't have any light. And other things like access to good health care you know people get sick we're able to go to the doctors or we've got hospitals we're able to call an ambulance whereas in a lot of these communities the the facilities are either so basic or they don't have anything at all um yeah the list goes on and on really what about food and water i mean how easy is it for them to access this kind of um A lot of them will put buckets out when it rains. That's probably the easiest thing to do. But, of course, that's only when it's wet season. Um, Apart from that, if they're really poor, they might need to go down to one of the local rivers, but the water's contaminated and it's not really good for drinking. But if they boil it, it's better than nothing. Um, But for those who might have a bit more money, they're able to maybe buy water. So, for example, at my training centre, we've got a, a large water tank and we sell, you know, 20 liters of water for about 20 shillings or 10 shillings or whatever it is. Or if you're, again, if you're wealthier than that, you can go to the shops and buy bottled water. But that's generally what a lot of the tourists would do if they pass through that area. But there's not normally tourists that live in the village itself. It's ridiculously expensive to buy water in the third world country anyway. (laughs) It's it's crazy that you can buy a bottle of Coke for 30 shillings, but for the same size water, it's 
a hundred shillings. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I remember I went to P and G. I think about a year and a half ago, and I I think it's just a uh, a dozen of one or uh, one liter of water, but you have a dozen of them, and I think they sold it for thirty seven Australian dollars. Oh, just my drawers just dropped to the floor. I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, it's a basic human right, you know, to be charging so much money. I guess they just take whatever opportunity they, you know, they yeah. have just to make some money on the Westerners. <laughs> I think another really big difference in the last one that I'll just make note of is the education and, and women and girls. When women or young girls have their periods, they have to stop going to school during that time, especially if there's no yeah. sanitation, you know, to go to the toilet, wash their hands or whatever yeah. it is. And that then has a, a long-term effect on you know, girls finishing school, a lot of them will stop and drop out as soon as they get their period, you know, whereas girls in Australia, we're so fortunate that not only do we have great hygiene and sanitation, we're able to use, you know, sanitary pads or tampons or cups or whatever it might be to enable women to continue throughout the day and live very normal, proactive lives. So what are you currently working um, in Kenya at the moment, Jenna? So I'm I'm currently trying to sustain my training center for women and girls. Um, uh, that's going to think take maybe another year or two whilst we're trying to figure out how to bring more income into the center. We currently have students learning how to do tailoring and making school uniforms, and we're selling those school uniforms to local schools, which is really really quite successful. Um, but because we've got four teachers and project manager and business manager who need to be paid, um, I'm currently doing fundraising events to be able to afford that, and then hopefully I'll be able to transition some of the teachers to volunteers to reduce those costs and then over time have it run by volunteers. Um, I think it's really important that the project's run by the community for the community and that they have ownership of of the training centre because that gives them value and purpose. But aside from that, this year my goal is to open up a medical clinic, which I would like to have a maternity ward and a general ward because having a nursing background, one of the things that I notice the most when I travel in Kenya is the poor accessibility to medical help when you need it. And also, I mean, there's a clinic in Nakuru where they don't even have water. How can you not have water in a medical clinic? It's crazy, eh? Craziness. That doesn't even make any sense. You know, how do you sanitize anything? How do you wash the linen? Just anything. So I, I want to be able to design, to design a um, quite a holistic medical clinic where we're able to in a location where it's accessible, especially by road, but by by locals who are able to come from a vast, you know, vicinity and, you know, really help prevent with mortality rates and, you know, HIV, malaria, all these things. How much it would cost to build a medical center, Jenna, especially <laughs> the one that you intended to build? I have to be honest, I have no idea because I'm, I've got the vision at the moment. Now I need to do the planning and I'm currently starting to do my research. And But do you have like a ballpark, how much it would cost? I mean, I think it's going to cost me a couple of hundred thousand. That is achievable to raise that kind of money here, isn't it? Yeah, I look, I'm pretty ambitious, so I'm going to make it work either way. But my big goal is it's going to have 
to the maternity ward and the general ward. It's going to have a big um, vegetable and fruit patch, like a big garden, so we can make sure that the women are, who, who might need to be overnight and fed and stuff have nutritious meals. I want to have a big community um, building, like a community centre, because I think education is vital. So I'd love to do free educational sessions and hold different events to enable those in the community to understand you know, how they can manage and look after their health better. And especially if you start doing that, it will drill into younger generations how they should be looking after themselves, you know, family planning, whatever it might be. And then also I'd like to open up a volunteers wing where we can get doctors or nurses or anybody with skills. You know, I think skills is the key, not just anybody to rock up, but people with skills who are able to help, you know, either do educational sessions or help with a medical clinic. And, you know, I think that's really important as well, that people have an opportunity to get out there and do something about it. Don't they have any hospitals in the surrounding area that they can go to? Why do you feel the need to open up one for them? Okay, so I, I don't want to do a hospital. So they do have um, some hospitals, but the, the biggest issue is accessibility. It's all well and good to have hospitals in certain key locations. If people don't have money, how are they going to get there? How are they going to physically access it? If they, I mean, a lot of the people in the village where I live never left the village. They've never even gone to Gilgil, which is the equivalent of a 20-minute like road trip. They've never even been in a vehicle before. So I want to, I want to look at, you know, do a bit of research, look on a map, and see where all the facilities are and either start from scratch, which is what I'm currently thinking of doing, or if there's something that's already existing that's in poor conditions, yeah. invest money into that to build that up. You know, I don't think it's necessary to duplicate many of the same things, but um, in, in saying that there's a huge, huge demand for, for health accessibility. True, because I remember when we were living in Vietnam and whenever I fell sick or one of the family members fell sick, uh, there's There was absolutely no facility or hospital or anywhere we could go to. And yeah. the closest hospital was like eight hours boat ride away. <laughs> so, it's, it's impossible. Yeah. My parents couldn't even afford you know, to buy the um, petrol to get there. Yeah. And when you get there, if you don't have any money, they wouldn't let you in anyway. So. Well, that, that's exactly it. I mean, one of my um, best friends, her sister had a two-month-old baby and um, they didn't realize that she had meningitis and pneumonia. So she had a temperature for three days and they called an ambulance. Mm. Now, the problem with in Kenya is that an ambulance won't come unless you send them money first so they can fill up their ambulance with petrol. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they do that. They take the child to hospital. But then the hospital sent the child away or the infant away and told them to go to a different hospital, which was two and a half hours away. So they did that and the baby died. Oh, sad. So to me, that I mean, I want to call the medical clinic Toto Tanya. So Toto in um, Swahili means baby baby Tanya. So I want to call my clinic after after her because that death was preventable. You know, That's basic sad, education. It? It's just like if the parents are better educated about warning signs as to, you know, the child's health and it's not their fault. Yeah. Because They don't have the facilities to do it, and that's that's what I want to be doing. I want to be – it's such a simple solution, education, you know. Again, something we take for granted in Australia. It's compulsory for children to have an education. But if I'm able to make an impact on even if it's like a, a 5, 10, 15, 100 people's lives, I would rather be proactive and do something about it than sit back and just 
think about how sad it is and be like, oh, well, get on with my life. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean, education is very is paramount. You know, my parents, especially like my mother, she she's illiterate. And she was like giving birth to babies like rabbits, you know. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> she didn't really know how to raise us, and she became such a terrible mother. But not because she's a bad person; it's just that she was uneducated, and Correct. you know she didn't really know how to handle life, and she doesn't know how to take care of her own children, doesn't know how to read or write. So, what is the point of having all these children? You know. Well, I- I think one of the one of the biggest things in um, developing countries is the hope that the more children that you have, that one or two will be successful, so they can look after you when you're older. But they can't afford to look after eight But children or nine you, children. <laughs> if you're not able to send your kids to school, if you're not able to feed your children, if you're not able to put a roof over your children's head, how are you expecting them to get to that level to be able to That's look right. after you? So. I mean, that's the biggest thing with family planning, and one of the great results with my training center is that a lot of the women now understand to have one or two children mm-hmm. rather than eight or nine children. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's trying to just it's trying to just teach them the most basic life skills yeah. that can transform their lives dramatically by having this simple knowledge. I think what you're doing is wonderful, and I really, really admire you for that. I wish you could have met my mother before. You know, she gave birth to a whole bunch of us. <laughs> how many of How many of you are there? Uh, five girls and two boys. It's just crazy, you know. She just couldn't look after us, couldn't feed us, couldn't do anything for us. But never yeah. mind. So, how often do you go to Kenya, Jenna? Um, I try to go annually. I I like to go over the December holidays because I work as a school nurse. I get the school holidays off, and I don't have to take time off work. Um, so it's quite often that I'm there from like mid December to mid January. Um, but hopefully when I do get this medical clinic up and going, which you know my goal is to to start the fundraising by next year. But this year I want to have a solid year of research and planning and get some experts in. Because to be honest, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> One step at a time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I I don't want to rush this because I don't want to stuff it up because I'm aware I don't want to hinder the people I'm trying to help. I, I've currently been working on a humanitarian course this weekend and I'll be doing the same next weekend through this amazing um business called Humanitarian Institute and that gives you a lot of the foundation like starting points and what you need to be doing. You know, now that I've done my first weekend, after next weekend, I think I'll sit down and actually start being realistic about how I'm going to approach. These goals that I'm wanting to achieve, so、I、kind of work backwards. I've got the goal in mind, and then work backwards to see how I'm able to get there. Yeah, that's the way to go. So, what kind of risk do you face every time you go over there? I mean, personal risk, because I know that for, for me, a third world country for a woman like you is, you know, it's just like you just. <laughs> can I just say that asking for trouble? You know, <laughs> yeah, you can actually, because I've been in a pretty, pretty bad situation before.、Uh-huh. So I mean, I, I've been to Kenya six times, and I've never been worried about my health or my safety or my welfare because I'm quite—I'm really smart about how I do things. I mean, even though I'm a white Australian, I'm never by myself. I'm always with local Kenyans. Okay, so tell me what happened to you. You said <laughs> personal drama. <laughs> okay, here we go. So, <laughs> I'm 25 now. Keep that in mind. So this is 2000, beginning of 2012. So we're talking about five years, five years ago now. Yeah. So I think I was 19 at the time, or 20. I was 
I was out with, uh, I had a Kenyan friend and I was out with a few of him and his mates and one of my sisters and one of four girls. Yeah. And she came the night before and we, we went out for dinner and we went out to a few clubs in um, Nairobi or Westlands, I should say. And we left um, the clubs about 3 a.m. in the morning, which I've been doing with these boys for a couple of nights. Yeah. And we were fine every other time. So, you know, you, get, you think, oh, it's fine. You know, mm-hmm. you're with you know, you're protected, whatever, whatever. And we got back to my friend's compound where we're staying and we didn't realise that a part of the trip on the way home we'd been followed by another car. So as we were waiting for the soldier, which is like a security guard who, you know, looks after the compound and lets cars in and out, as we were waiting for him to open up the the compound for us, we had three guys with guns each get into the car with us. Wow. So already we were seven people in a five-seater car. You know, rules go out the window <laughs> in developing countries for some reason. Um, and then next thing you know, there's ten of us in a five-seater car. So my sister and two of the men were put in the boot, and we were driven for half an hour. Um, at the time, we had no idea where we were. And then one by one, we were pulled out, stripped of any possessions, lying on the ground, hands down, face out for about an hour, hour and a half, whatever it was. Um, reality was I was expecting to get raped and shot at the back of the head, mm-hmm. to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I count my lucky stars and nothing happens. Wow, lucky you. Um, which is very lucky because they ended up stealing the vehicle and just left, left us stranded, which was fine wow. I mean, after being abducted and stuff. But if you're not harmed, like that's the best outcome. So was that the only incident that happened to you ever since? Yeah, that's it. That's the only thing. And I mean, I've been back to Kenya three times since, so that's not stopped me from from going back at all. But, you know, that was a learning experience. And I don't regret having gone through that because in reality, that's what a lot of the locals face on a daily basis. So if anything, it's given me a better understanding of how things operate there. And not that I'm excusing the behavior of these men. If I was in a situation where I had to do whatever it took to feed my family, if it meant stealing from people... I'm pretty sure I would. But fortunately for me, it wasn't the next day because I heard on the news after I dropped my sister to the airport because we both left like within 48 hours. She went back to the UK and I came back to Australia. I literally just dropped her off and on the news and the radio they said that there was a carjacking and six people were murdered. Oh, wow. I broke down into tears because I was like, oh, my God, that could be me. Yeah, it happened in third world a lot, you know, because, I mean, like I said, they live in desperation. And they would do anything to, to, not that, I don't think that they wanted to kill you, but, I mean, some do, but it's just that you live in such desperate situation, what can you do, yeah. do you know what I mean? So, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, nobody, I don't think anybody really ideally wants to be in that situation where that's their last resort, you know. And to be honest, I think only one of them knew what they were doing. Yeah. There was yeah. like a ringleader. And, but they were really polite. This is the way they're like, excuse me, you have car insurance. Yo, it's going to fill the car. Take it. <laughs> I think you were just lucky, seriously, you know. It comes down to luck and, you know, wrong place, wrong timing. I mean, yeah, fair enough, I shouldn't be out at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night in Africa. But I'm also not going to live my life and pretend that. Well, you were young and naive too, I guess. That, I mean, that's a huge factor. But, I mean, in Australia, you could be in King's Cross that's on a right. night and the same thing can happen, you know. Yeah, so that's right. I say to people, it doesn't matter where you are, you just got to have your wits about you. and yeah. you know, But you just have to be careful too, I guess. You know, just have to be conscious where you are and be careful where you go. 
risk assessment. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I forgive you because you were only nineteen at the time. <laughs> so, Jenna, for our listeners out there that want to assist you with your projects, how can they do that? Okay. So, the three main things that I always say to people, if you want to help, is either volunteer your time because that. You know, that's the most important thing is time. Um, volunteer any skills that you have. Yeah. And if you have neither of those things, then volunteer or, or donate, donate money. I mean, ideally money gets us the furthest because that's we're able to actually implement what we want to do. But I, at the moment, I really need people with skills who are committed to wanting to support what we're doing and really believe in it. Yeah, and what kind of skills, Jenna? Okay, so I'm looking for people who might be doctors or nurses or accountants or architects, any profession, because at the end of the day, you can tie it in somehow to what I want to do. You yeah. know, garden, nutrition, you know, I want to, I want to know all these things. Yeah. Um, educators, you know, for people who, who don't speak English, I'm going to have to be considerate that if I do educational programs, yeah. I'm getting yeah. a local person to be able to speak, you know, the native language, which is Kikuyu. You know, but at least if I have the structure in English, I can get somebody to translate that into either Swahili or whichever tribes. You know, there's no point going to all this work and doing it all in English and then just stopping there and they don't understand English. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, If anyone listening out there, please get in touch with Jenna. You know, what she's doing is amazing. So before we go, what advice do you have for our young audiences that really want to follow your footsteps, Jenna? Um, I think the most important thing, if you're really interested in doing humanitarian work or, or helping other people, you've got to start off by having a skill mm-hmm. and then use that skill. I mean, having the heart and the passion, which is how I started, is a very important element, but it's, you know, that's not enough. You can't have uneducated or unskilled people going into developing countries and taking over jobs of locals if they're not even equipped with with the correct um, skills to do so. So I think go out and have and find a skill that you're passionate about. No matter what it is, you can find a way of, of putting it into the sector. But be proactive. I've started this myself and I'm going to keep going. And anybody who wants to join me along the way, I want to join forces with. I'm not... I'm not really a competitive type of person. Like, I want to do this by myself and prove to people or better than you. I want as many people to get on board as possible because the more hands you have, the lighter the work becomes. Well, on behalf of all the third world people, children and women and everyone alike, I mean, I I really want to sincerely say thank you so much for your amazing work. And, you know, I think the world needs more people like you because without people like you, people like me wouldn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you so much jenna and i I hope you have a fabulous morning thank you so much for having me no worries thank you take care Bye. bye that's all for now thank you so much for listening i'll see you in the next episode bye